Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, as we turn to the Word of God this morning, we are looking at chapter chapters 56 to 66 in kind of a survey and summary fashion. And um, these chapters are marking off essentially the, f- the sixth and final major division within the book of Isaiah as we're studying it, looking through it. And uh, in order for us to kind of set that up, I think it's important for us to consider where we've come up to this point. Uh, some of you are even newer to our church, and you were not even here several months ago to, to kind of be familiar with the, the flow of the book. And it's a huge book, obviously. It's um, one of the largest books in the, all of Scripture. And the way that the book of Isaiah is put together actually informs and instructs how we understand it, how we interpret it, and the message that Isaiah is seeking to communicate. So we need to understand where we've come from in order to understand where we are going to wrap up here in these final chapters. In chapters 1 to 5 of Isaiah, we see the first major division of the book, and we said that these first five chapters are are prefatory. They function like the preface to the entire book. Why Isaiah's ministry, his prophetic ministry, is even necessary, what the situation is in Judah on the ground as he begins his, his, uh, his prophetic ministry. None of that is clear if it weren't for the opening five chapters. He lays that out for us as we see um, in uh, the opening five chapters. God has chosen to make a nation out of Abraham's descendants to be a billboard for the nations. Israel was to be a billboard for the nations to herald his glory, to reveal his salvation to the world, but they had fallen desperately short in that. And so after centuries, literally centuries of unfaithfulness and idolatry and rebellion, God calls Isaiah to be and commissions him confronting them to call Israel back to the Lord, to call them back to his standard before his purifying judgment rolls up on them. And so, again, the opening five chapters function like a preface, which leads us into chapters 6 to 12, because chapters 6 to 12 are another, the second major division in the book. It's sometimes referred to by uh, theologians as the book of Emmanuel. In chapter 6 in particular, God records his commissioning of the prophet, which tells us again and again that death does not have the final word. Chapter 5 ends with the lights going out. There is no light, and yet as we come to chapter 6, there are flickers of light that emerge. There is always hope. Chapter 6 tells us there is always hope for God to act, even when it seems as though the lights have been extinguished. And he's going to explain that to us through his confrontation of Isaiah, his cleansing of Isaiah, and his commissioning. And in all of it, he says, there's always hope for divine action when the odds seem impossibly long. That is the theme. And he's, as he's carried along by the Spirit, what he's telling us in chapter 6 is that what God has done in me individually, Isaiah is saying, God can do that in you, Judah, because of his power. And chapter 7 to 12 teach us that God is going to accomplish his salvation through the greater and perfect son of David. There are key figures in each of the sections of this book that take center stage. And in the opening chapters, the son, the, the son of David is the one who is kind of at the foreground. And yet, at the same time, Isaiah has to face the situation that's in front of him on the ground. 
And it's not a pretty one. And so he provides a sobering diagnosis of their present condition. And at the same time, he paints this glorious vision and picture of what the future will be. And, and we see, and standing between what is and what is to come is this promise of Emmanuel, God with us. In chapter 7, and again, we see his, his uh, climactic uh, victory and his kingdom established in chapter 9. We see him rising up as the shoot of Jesse, the root and shoot of Jesse in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, it ends with him explaining that God is in their midst. So from God being completely out of their midst in the end of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 12, we see God in their midst, a complete reversal. Chapters 13 to 27 then mark a third major division of the book. Judah isn't sure that they can or even want to trust God than what he has said. And as a result, they have placed their trust in a thousand other things. That's the issue that they're dealing with. Um, chapters 13 to 27 take us behind the scenes and make clear that, that, that Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, is the sovereign Lord of history. He is the sovereign Lord of history. And 13 said to 23 are, uh, in those chapters, there's like a series of prophecies concerning the Gentile nations of the day. And while chapters, uh, and, and he explains what he's going to do with each of them. And, while, and then chapters 24 to 27 describe a future worldwide judgment that, um, that gives way to a future worldwide kingdom. And we said the picture that these chapters, this is a big chunk of text, that these chapters give us, the, the big picture that they help us understand is that the triune God holds the fate of the nations in the palm of his hand. That there, at the end of the day, there is only hope found in God and God alone. There's no one else, no nation, no individual, nothing that you can turn to. That he is the foundation of our lives and he is the one in whom the promises of God will be fulfilled. And then in chapters 20 to 39, there's a fourth major division in the book. And trusting God is a central theme in that section as well. Like, kind of almost think of it like the beating of a drum, just kind of repeating this idea. The more he says it, he says it a thousand different ways. We are confronted with this choice in chapters 20 to 39. Will you live your life by the promises of God or, or will you live by worldly strategies and human policies? There's only two options out there, and that's how we are to uh, think about it. And these chapters deal with historical events that were, tr that were very close to Isaiah's day or things that would unfold uh, shortly thereafter. And, and in those chapters... Uh, we are, you know, he's dealing with historical realities, but those historical realities function as faith builders for God's people in every generation. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for Judah. It's for us as well. And he, we learn more about what God expects out of his people. And then the fifth major division comes in chapters 40 to 55, and that's what we've been looking at over the last several messages. We called this section the Book of the Servant, because now, instead of the son of David, in the first 39 chapters, the son of David is kind of the, the key figure. Now, it is another figure, same person, but he's, he's presented in a new way, and that is the Lord's servant takes center stage in chapters 40 to 55. And, and these chapters are like God's reassuring hand coming along the shoulder, over the shoulder of his people saying, God's word is trustworthy, and, and it, he will make good on what he has promised. 
It begins with words of comfort. It begins with words of, of consolation. And they are meant to sustain, they are meant to, to strengthen the hand of a faltering and faithless people. Because that's ultimately what they are. These are, the, these are the chapters that God's people will turn to in the exile because these, God's words will, will be uh, needed in, in a time where it seems like all the promises of God have failed. God, he says in these chapters, has not been defeated by the no-gods of the human imagination. God hasn't been one-upped by any earthly superpower, not Babylon, not Assyria, not Egypt, no one. And then ultimately, God hasn't even been hamstrung by the faithlessness of his own people. And so, again, the theme of these chapters is despite all that's happening around us, at bottom, God is trustworthy. He is the king of kings, and he's worthy of all of our dependence. And he promised two things in these chapters. He says, I'm going to provide... uh, Exile, I'm going to provide you uh, relief from exile coming out of Babylon. There will be a national liberation. And then he also promises that there would be spiritual redemption. That national liberation was going to come through a Gentile ruler who he actually names. He names him uh, 140 years before he even came to power. And he tells us that Cyrus, king of Persia, is the one that's going to lead them out of captivity But he also promises spiritual redemption, and that is going to come through the Lord's servant. Israel had forsaken the way of peace, as we all have. And so if salvation of both body and soul are going to be accomplished, if peace is going to be established and brokered between a holy God and sinful creatures, there cannot simply be a change of scenery. There can't be a change of of, of venue. There has to be a change of heart. And Isaiah 53, like the additional three descriptions of the Lord's servant that we see sprinkled throughout 40 to 55, reveal a powerful and prophetic portrait, we said, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh. We understand that. God, through his mouthpiece, the prophet, has promised this glorious future for his people. He's never going to forsake them. He says, you're written on the, I have you written on the palm of my hands. And so there, he says there will be restoration, there will be righteousness, there will be spiritual renewal that will come to you, and the problem of man's sin will finally and fully be dealt with. So the question that remains is how? How is God going to just forgive sin? How is God going to acquit the guilty? Because a righteous judge would not acquit the guilty, and a, and a righteous God cannot simply ignore sin. Of course, the answer we saw is that he is going to deal with the problem of man's sin through a substitutionary sacrifice that is through the sacrifice of the Lord's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we said like a master conductor, he is, um, you could almost think of from chapter 52, verse 13, all the way down to the end of chapter 53, you could think of it as a, as a, a, a composition, a musical composition with five distinct movements each carry, each conducted in three verses. And, and we are led through the servant's suffering and his exaltation with, with incredible prophetic accuracy. So many of the details of Christ's life are captured here and stand out as we read through them. And we see the grace of God, we see the love of God, we see the wisdom of God in bringing all that, all that together.
In the opening few verses, 13 to 15 of chapter 52, there is this unex- we, we are come face to face with the servant's unexplainable identity. Nate, earlier, Israel is called God's servant, but they couldn't be, as we said at the beginning, they could not be what God created them to be. They could not uh, fulfill the mandate that God had given them. And so we're told to look to the Lord's servant. He will be what Israel could not be. He will prosper, verse 13. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He is not just a man, he is, he is the God-man. And yet, in the very next verse, he tells us that he will be marred more than any man. He will suffer. He will be humiliated, defeated from an earthly vantage point. So he is, he is the Lord's servant, but he is also suffering. And the result of that work, verse 15, is that he will sprinkle many nations. God, through his servant, is going to save and sanctify a people out of every tribe, out of every nation, out of every people for himself. And so we're left at the end of this first three verses wondering, how does exaltation come out of defeat? How does, how does this emerge out of humiliation? What kind of a person is this going to be? And how are we going to, under, how is this all going to work out? And that leads us into chapter 53, where we see God's unbelievable strategy. Isaiah unpacks some factual realities of this suffering servant. He's the arm of the Lord, but he's not the, he's not the one that they expect. No one expects his birth, his life, his ministry. None of it fits the bill of a Savior. It all looks wrong. They would look at Jesus' life, the world would, even his own people, and his suffering and his sorrows, and they would pass the verdict over his life that he is guilty. It just seems like an unbelievable strategy. This, this cannot be, as you read it, how God's going to save humanity. This cannot be how he's going to deal with, with human beings' sin. But that's exactly who he is. He is the Lord's servant, and his humiliation is exactly what God intended from eternity past. And so in verses 4 to 6, we saw the third movement of this servant's song, and God unveils that the servant is going to be our unblemished remedy our unblemished remedy. His suffering isn't because of his own sin, but because of our sin. The servant's going to bear and carry our sin burden as if it were his own. He will be pierced through for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being will fall upon him, and by his scourging we will be healed. This reality is that the servant is going to do what he has been called to do alone. He is the perfect and unblemished remedy for our sin. The chastening for our well-being that our sin deserves, that fell on him so that we might be at peace with God. He stepped forward in love and for his own glory, and he brings us back. And so verse 6 reminds us that while there's a shepherd who so loves his wandering sheep, that he voluntarily then yields his life up in their place to bring them back to himself. And we said there, in these, these three verses, is probably the most a succinct and vivid picture of the gospel, uh, the, probably one of the most greater than maybe any other you'll see in all of Scripture. And in the fourth movement, we saw Christ's unparalleled humility. He, he, he wants us to know that when he went to the cross, when Christ went to the cross, he did so voluntarily. 
He wasn't dragged against his will. He freely allowed himself to be treated this way. He freely allowed himself to be brought low so that he might suffer in our place. Christ's movement to the cross for us was an act of his own conscious will. The servant is the shepherd of the sheep, and at the same time, he is the unblemished lamb who will make atonement for sin in the place of his people. So his death, his death was the ultimate act of humiliation, died as a common criminal on the side of the road, under judgment. But the servant's death, of course, is not the end. Because in chapters 10 to, uh, verses 10 to 12, the fifth and final movement, Isaiah heralds the servant's unquestioned victory. He pulls back the curtain as we look at these final verses, and he helps us understand that this was God's plan from the beginning. This was, none of this was a surprise. This is exactly what God intended. He doesn't use resurrection language explicitly, but he describes the servant alive and well after death. He is enjoying the salvation that he has accomplished. The Lord laid down his life as a guilt offering for sinners, and because of that, he has satisfied God's justice for the many. This is the risen Savior in these final verses, enjoying the reward of his saving work. He has sacrificed himself, and now he gets to enjoy the fruits of his sacrifice, and that is those who share in his eternal life. And so, That's what we looked at in detail last Sunday. And what unfolds then in chapters 54 to 55 is God's personal invitation both to Israel in chapter 54 and the nations in chapter 55 to repent and to put their trust in the Lord and in his servant. And you see that in chapter 55 and verse 3. He says, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. This is the language of, uh, this is a gospel call right here. Verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. See, it's not enough that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave. Like, that that happened in time and space in history. That saving work must be embraced by each individual heart as you, sinner, come to the end of yourself and your own futile attempts to earn your way to God and instead throw yourself on the mercy of Christ and, and cry out to him, trusting in him, following him. That's what you must do. Faith anchored in Jesus Christ alone, is what applies his perfect life to your heart. And and it's credited to your account. That's what unites you to Christ, making you a share of his eternal life. So baptism, church attendance, righteous deeds, those don't save us. They don't save us. For for, For those things to be Um, Anything more than dead works, they must be the fruit of a changed heart. You have to have a changed heart. A changed heart is, is one that has sincerely renounced sin and rebellion and any and all efforts on your part to get to God by your works. Being justified, this it's just a fancy term that says righteous, it's just to be righteousified, okay? To be declared righteous in God's sight is a gift of his grace. 
It's a gift of his grace. Romans 3 verse 24 says, and properly speaking, you don't make or earn a gift for yourself unless you have little kids, in which case you will make the gift, pay for the gift, wrap the gift, unwrap the gift. But properly speaking, you do not, right? If you're given a gift, you receive it joyfully. You delight in it. And that's what saving faith is. It's a wholehearted receiving and resting in the righteousness of Christ alone for your salvation. And when that happens, when that happens for real, it always results in a changed life. Always. 1 John 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, John says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected or fully brought to completion. You say, well, does that mean as a true believer that, that if you're a true believer, you don't sin anymore? And of course, that's not what, what John's saying. Even as born-again believers, we still sin. But here's the thing. There's a difference. There's a difference in our life before Christ and after Christ. As believers, we have a completely different attitude and relationship toward our sin. We'll say, well, how is it different? Well, let me give you four things. I'm glad you asked. First, as a believer, while we sin, we're not okay with it. We're not okay with it. We don't glory in sin. We don't give hearty approval to others who sin and, 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 and shake their fist at the word of God. We don't excuse sin when we see our sin or when others point out our sin to us. We are grieved by it. Apart from anything else, we're grieved by it that we have dishonored the one who bought us with his blood. So even if no one sees that sin, maybe it's something deep in your heart, a wicked thought, something that no one was around to observe, you still are not okay with it because the Lord sees it and the Lord knows it and we have failed to glorify him with our lives. So the first distinctive of a believer is that they're not okay with their sin. Second, we're eager as a believer to confess that sin. We are eager to confess our sin. We are earnest to say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. And we come to him asking for him to cleanse our hearts and to give us fresh grace to obey him. Third, as a believer, we're not okay with our sin. We're eager to confess it. Third, we purpose in our hearts to walk in obedience to God's word in the future. We are purposing in our hearts to walk in obedience to God's word in the future. True believers fight against sin and temptation. True believers submit themselves to the word of God when it, conf when it convicts and confronts them. They instinctively, by the Spirit's power, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and try and make no provision for the flesh. And fourthly, true believers over time don't become sinless in this life, but they do sin less. Okay? We don't become sinless. This, you know, that, that awaits us in glory, but they do become sin, uh, we do sin less. 
than we did before. 1 John 2, verse 5, By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Right? So if you're a Christian and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're trusting him by faith and he's done a work of regeneration in your heart, then your life is going to look more and more like his the longer you walk with him. 1 John 3 and verse 3, And everyone who has this hope, the hope of the gospel, fixed on Christ, purifies himself as he, Christ, is pure. So as you grow in Christ, your life looks more, should look more and more like Christ's. And your sensitivity to your sin increases and grows. And that all that is a confirmation that you are in reality a new creation. And sometimes people, as they think through their testimony, they say, I don't, I don't know when I was saved. I, I, you know, I, I made a profession of faith when I was a younger child, went to church, and, you know, but then, you know, then, you know, the teenage years happened, and a lot of things weren't really godly during that time, and wasn't really interested in the Lord, didn't go to church, and young adult, whatever, and, and then in the last five years, I've been, you know, I see myself walking with Christ, loving his people, fighting against the sin, and I say, I don't know when I was a Christian. I always tell people, when did your life change? When did your life change? That's when you got saved. Because if your life doesn't change, you're not saved. It just isn't. By, and I'm, that's not my assessment, that's John's assessment. Now, I say all that I have just said because a central theme of these final 10, uh, 11 chapters 56 to 66, a central theme that these chapters deal with is what God's people should be doing in between the reality of the cross and Christ's return. We have to read chapters 56 to 66 in the light of what we have already studied, what we have already read. And what we've seen is the incredible accuracy of God's prophetic word. God, through Isaiah, promised to send Judah into exile in Babylon, right? Chapter 39, he says, you're going into exile in Babylon. And that's exactly what they did. God, through Isaiah, promised to bring them back into the land through his anointed shepherd, Cyrus, king of Persia. And that's what he did. God, from the mouth of the prophet, promised Messiah would be born of a virgin that he would be the son of David, and that he would be the son of God, and that's exactly who he was. And God, through Isaiah, revealed that his servant would be God in human flesh, that he would be rejected and suffer, that he would die in the place of his people and rise from the grave and be exalted to the right hand of God, and that's exactly what the gospel record said Christ was and what he did. And so this is why... so. In light of that, this is why we're challenged and encouraged to keep trusting and keep obeying God's word while we wait for Christ to come back. The near-term fulfillments that we've already seen give us confidence that God's word from Isaiah is true and trustworthy. And so when it speaks about things that are still future, things that are yet to come, which is kind of what he's dealing with in these chapters— you know, new heavens and the new earth. He's going to talk about that in great detail in 60 to 62. Or God's judgment of the wicked and his triumph over his enemies, which he does in chapter 63 and again in 66. 
These are all things that are still future from our vantage point, from our perspective. Because those are future, we can have absolute confidence that all of it will come to pass. And so we're, as we read these chapters, we're stirred up to a persevering faith as we identify ourselves as believers, if we're believers, with the righteous remnant who hear and believe and obey God's word. And it is the remnant who have really been the focus of Isaiah's ministry from the outset. Remember in chapter 6, he says, you're going to go and you're going to preach and no one's going to listen. But there will be some who listen. He's, Isaiah's ministry is one of confrontation, but it also was a calling of a remnant. God's people, his true people, are those who are first called and then nourished spiritually on the prophetic message of the Savior. So whether it's before the exile, as Judah staring down existential threats from the nations around them, or the exile itself, when it looks like the false gods of Babylon and have triumphed over the true and living God, or the post-exile return, or the coming of Messiah, or the end of history at the last judgment, the question is, is in all of those contexts, is still the same. How does God expect the faithful remnant to live in the in-between time? How, does the, how do the redeemed demonstrate the genuineness of their faith in God's promises? And what we, all, what we will learn and, and do learn in these final chapters is that the remnant are those who demonstrate the reality of their faith by obedience to the revealed will of God, his word, both in their belief and in their conduct, in their behavior. And so if the suffering servant has purchased redemption for his people, ensuring a salvation that will incorporate individuals out of both Israel and the nations, a salvation that's freely offered on the basis of his grace, the question is, how must his people live in the meantime? How do we live in the meantime? Now, we can break these final chapters down into three distinct sections, and that's going to be our outline with the few minutes that we have left. <laughs> I hear the Snickers. <laughs> that's the beauty of this room. It, hi it hides nothing. <laughs> First, from chapter 56, verse 1, to 59, verse 15. All of that, that whole section deals with what we ought to be versus what we presently are. Chapter 56, verse 1 to chapter 59 and verse 15 deals with what we ought to be versus what we presently are. From the very beginning, look at the beginning of chapter uh, 56, there are commands that are given. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from, from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. You read that, apart from everything else, it seems like God's saying, you got to earn your way to me. This is works-based salvation. Is that what you're saying, God? And of course, that's not the case at all, because even at the end of verse 1, the reason for that doing justice, uh, doing righteousness and preserving justice is because for my salvation is about to come. It's because, it's because of what the servant has done, his perfect life and his atoning death, that we do these things. 
We obey God not to earn his forgiveness, but because he has atoned for our sins and we are his forgiven people. This is how we live in the in-between time. But the reality of the world that we live in, and even the visible people of God, is this, that we are divided and hostile and compromising and full of hypocrisy. Look at chapter 56 in verse 10. Isaiah says, his watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And, there are shep- and they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine. Let us drink heavily or of strong drink. And tomorrow we will be And tomorrow will be like today and only more so. And the righteous man perishes, verse 1 of chapter 57, and no one takes it to heart. He's saying as long as the present order continues, man's inability to truly glorify God will continue to be a problem. It will continue to be a problem, which means there will always be a need for repentance and dependence on God's mercy. If you look down at chapter 57 and verse 15, he says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. That's not good news for sinners. (laughs) But look what he says next. But also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of those whom I have made. God's people, like we said earlier, are those who confess their sin and repent and find fresh grace and mercy from the Lord. And the same cycle is repeated in chapters 58 and 59. Commands are given in the beginning part, chapter 58. Man's inability is exposed in the beginning part of chapter 59. And then repentance and dependence on God's mercy is is given and confession is made in chapter 59 and verses 9 to the beginning part of chapter 15. This is the reality. This is the pattern. This is the pattern and the template for how God's people are to live in the in-between time. Striving to obey, recognizing that we will fall short, and turning to the Lord in repentance and finding mercy. And the cycle continues. We strive to obey. We fall short. We confess that. We, we turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. Fresh grace. The question is, will we ever get off this spiritual merry-go-round? Will it ever end? And Isaiah promises that it will. And it will, we will when we get to the new heaven and the new earth. When Christ returns to restore the kingdom that has, that would fell in Genesis chapter three, finally God's people will receive the fullness of their inheritance. And that leads into the section second major section of these chapters, from chapter 59, verse 15, all the way to chapter 63 and verse 6, we are, um, Isaiah is going to show us the promised conqueror bringing salvation and measuring out judgment. 
The promised conqueror comes in salvation and judgment. This is, this, these chapters are the, are the center and the beating heart of these final 11 chapters. Zion will finally be glorified. And as Isaiah describes what God will do in Zion, particularly, we gain an understanding of what he's going to do through the whole earth. Remember we said the way he speaks about Jerusalem and the things that are going to happen there, it's sort of representative of all that God will do. In chapter 60, verse 1, he says, Arise, arise, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Verse 4 in chapter, he says, uh, lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. Later on in verse 19, he says, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness Will the, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. And who is going to be the per- I mean, this is a radical transformation that, that's coming. Who is going to be the person to usher in this transformation to the created order? Well, in chapter 61, we find out it's the Lord's anointed. It is Christ himself. The spirit of the Lord, verse 1, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, and they will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. It's interesting, Jesus, when he's in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, he read the beginning part of verse 1, or he read verse 1 in the beginning part of verse 2. And he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What he didn't read was the last part of verse 2, verse 3 and verse 4, because those things are yet to come. His judgment The day of vengeance is yet to come. And the repairing and the restoration of all things, that is yet to come. But when Christ returns, it will be fulfilled. And what will be the response of God's people and the creation when that happens? The chapter 61 and verse 11, for as the earth earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Worldwide praise, righteousness, and joy are diffused from one end of the earth to the other. 
You say, well, what's going to happen to the unbelievers, to those who've rejected Christ in the gospel? Well, Christ, the anointed conqueror, will measure out divine justice and righteous vengeance upon his enemies. And that's given to us in chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. But look at verse 4. He says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Like a man in white clothing trampling out grapes, he says, so Christ will trod out the peoples in his anger. You know, every time we see the wicked prevail and the righteous stumble, it's tempting. I get it. I feel this all the time. It's tempting to want to take matters into our own hands. Or even question if God cares. We can sometimes just lose hope. But here, in Isaiah, we see God make good on his word when he says in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is why we never take our own revenge. But, as Paul says, leave room for the wrath of God. This is what he's talking about. Third, from chapter 63 and verse 7 to the end of the book, in chapter 66, verse 24, we See, a reliant people and a responding God. A reliant people and a responding God. You know, this verses 1 to 6 of chapter 63, it's, it's very sobering. Christ measures out divine justice on his enemies and redeems his children. So the question is, what, what is there left to do after that? Well, the answer is pray for its fulfillment and rest in the promises of God. Pray for its fulfillment and rest in the promises of God. After rehearsing God's faithfulness to Israel in the past, making spe- he makes special ex- uh, mention of the Exodus and God's kindness to them in drawing them out of, exi- out of uh, captivity. The response of God's people is, yeah, we know this is what you do, so why not do it now? Why not now? Look at chapter 63 and verse 15. Look, this is the people speaking. Look down from heaven and see your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained. I don't see them. For you are our father, through Abraham, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants and the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while, and our our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. And then in verse 64, it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He's saying, this is God's people crying out, why not now, Lord? This is what you're going to do, do it now. And what follows in chapter 64 is one of the most moving prayers of mercy and God's help that you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. Which then gives way to God's direct response to the believer's prayer in chapter 65. And God's response is, 
I have been extending myself to you from the beginning. But no one was interested. Look at verse 65 in verse 1. He says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not even ask for me. This is God speaking. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face. God says, I've been here from the beginning. It's you who have not come to me. Nevertheless, there will be a righteous remnant that respond to the offer of the gospel and enjoy the blessings of salvation. And he points them out in chapter 65 and verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for there is a benefit in it, so I will act on behalf of my servants, plural, in order not to destroy all of them. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit, inherit it and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks in the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. He says, there is a remnant who will come and they will see. And what finally then in chapter 66 Isaiah concludes by kind of shading in and putting the finishing touches on the portrait of the new heavens and the new earth that he's been drawing throughout these chapters. And there's a call to holiness in, these chap- in chapter 66 and a warning to those who continue in hypocrisy, unbelief, and rebellion. And really, as you read chapter 66, the personal application question is this. Do I tremble at his word or do I refuse him when he calls? Do I tremble at his word or do I refuse him when he calls? To the one who trembles at his word, God says in chapter 66, verse 2, to this one I will look. To the one who refuses him when he calls, verse 14 of chapter 66, he says he will be indignant toward his enemies. To the one who loves the Lord, 66, He says, you will be comforted in Jerusalem's salvation. To the one who rejects him, the very last verse, he says, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. So what? So what? Why why are we looking at this? The waiting time, the in-between time, is the testing time. God's patience is holding back his righteous judgment. Will that waiting time for you be a time of repentance and renewed commitment as we follow Christ, who is our Savior, or will the waiting time be for you a continuing rebellion and rejection of God's will? Those who are trusting in Christ, there is a glorious future that is coming. Glorious, beyond our wildest expectations. And um, we're going to learn quite a bit about it as we study chapter sixty. To 62. For those who remain indifferent and harden their hearts, to borrow the words of the writer of Hebrews, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we need to consider that. We need to consider that. You know, he says, anyone 
writer of Hebrews says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think you will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? He says, remember the former days when you endured the suffering and the conflicts, partly by being made a public spectacle and partly by becoming shares of those so treated. And then here's the, here's the application. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence as a believer, which has a great reward. For in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But as believers, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And if you need some examples of faith, read chapter 11. By faith, Moses, Abel, Noah, and he goes down the list. This is how we live. So that's what's awaiting us. These chapters are not as clean and concise as some of the previous sections. They kind of go all over the place. But, but really, I think the, the, the kind of controlling theme is, is what are God's people doing in the waiting time? How do we live our lives between the cross and Christ's return? And it's a fitting end for a prophet who was called ultimately to minister to the remnant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Isaiah, and you know, there's a lot of heavy lifting that's in front of us as we study through these chapters over the next several weeks. Help us to understand those things and help us to take them to heart. At the end of the day, um, we have two choices. We can either live by faith or we can live by our own wisdom and understanding. Help us to uh, persevere. If we're in Christ and we're struggling to really hold on to the promises of God, uh, Lord, may you use these chapters to dislodge us from any, um, uh, from throwing away the confidence that we have in Christ, which brings us a great reward. And if we're not in Christ, may we come to him in, with a full and complete surrender such that we would be um, brought into the fold through the, the door of the sheep. Lord, we thank you that you loved us with such an eternal love. Help us to Help us to glorify you and honor you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.